So the theme of uh, this evening's talk is of uh, cultivating a path, cultivating a path. And I'll be reflecting a little bit both in terms of uh, what we've been doing over the last few days here and also how that sense of cultivating, developing a path um, flows out as we go back to the rest of our lives and informs the way that we interact with other people, the way we speak, the way we live. Um, I've come across this lovely thing about why people come to a monastery. And I'm taking a little bit of liberty and thinking we can translate that to why people come to a retreat centre. Obviously a heart, very similar uh, aspiration in those two places. But it gave me a lovely sense really of what we've been doing here. Uh, it's from um, Ajahn uh, Chandra Siri, who's one of the, the nuns at uh, Amravati. Uh, she says, Coming to a monastery, we find people who are willing to look at and understand the root cause of human ignorance, selfishness, and all the abominable things that happen in the world. People who are willing to look into their own hearts and to witness the greed and violence that others are so ready to criticize out there. Through experiencing and knowing these things, we learn how to make peace with them, right here in our own hearts, in order that they may come to cessation. Then, maybe rather than simply reacting to the ignorance of humanity and adding to the confusion and violence that we see around us, we are able to act and speak with wisdom and compassion in ways that can bring that can help to bring a sense of ease and harmony among people. There's a a lovely vision of what we've been doing and a sense also of the importance of that kind of uh, inner exploration we've been doing, even when it feels so difficult. You know, like she says, I mean, most of us tend to think of ourselves as nice people, as uh, kind of... uh, you know, good people, kind people, whatever. And it sometimes can be quite humbling coming on retreat. And we see all of the kind of things that are going on in our own hearts and minds. And as she says, the wisdom from seeing that this is not out there, you know, the kind of forces of greed and uh, kind of holding and grasping and all that kind of thing, we can see it all here. We can see it all here. And then we can begin to relate to that in a different way. We're not having to project it outside on others as if, you know, all the difficult things in the world are to do with those difficult other people. <laughs> Nothing to do with me. It's a really brave and courageous and important thing to begin to take responsibility for that, to kind of work with that in our own world. And it's not, um, it's not always easy, but it's so important, so precious uh, to be able to do that, what we've been doing. And uh, to me that also gives a sense of what the value is of coming on retreat. Uh, I think it's helpful not to see the value of meditation in terms of any particular experience that we're having. So we tend to think, oh, you know, I've had a good meditation, it's been calm. I had a very difficult meditation, it was full of anger and resentment. Um, and as if, you know, the purpose of coming on retreat just to have the calm ones. And if we can you know, not have the other ones, then we'd have done really well. And that was a good one, that was a bad one. Um, 
But it's, I really think it's not so simple as that. And actually what, what the fruit of this is, is in then how we come to the world. I had a, a time once when I was uh, sitting in meditation before going to work and I was kind of sitting there and, you know, there's sort of World War Three going on, you know, <laughs> sort of argument with this person, argument with that person, wow, are they going to do that and things. And I sort of finished the meditation practice and I thought, you know, am I going to be able to go in today? Kind of <laughs> you know, there's sort of, and then, of course, you get into, you know, they kind of thought, oh, I've been doing this so many years. Well, this is going on. Anyway, then I went to work. And uh, then the people that I was, those kind of thoughts and feelings and reactions were around, you know, I was able to say, you know, good morning, how are you? Yeah, how was your weekend? And not in a fake way. You know, sometimes that's a bit fake, isn't it? You know, trying to put on a smile, but not in a fake way. And it really was as if experiencing those things and seeing those reactions, seeing those responses, judgments, resentments, was a way of allowing them, as she says, to come to cessation. You know, not by resisting them, fixing them, trying to change them, just allowing them to arise, allowing them to pass. And so, maybe more mysterious, really, what is a good meditation? <laughs> and what is a good retreat? What's a... You know, not such a good retreat, whatever that means. And have quite an open mind about that. You know, in a sense, it's about working with whatever's there. So that's what we're doing in a way, cultivating this path, cultivating the path. And when we think about a path, a path of freedom, a path of wisdom, compassion, a path of liberation path of deepest happiness, inner peace, all the different ways we may think about that. Interesting to think what this notion of path brings up. And uh, a friend of mine said to me something I I really like, so I shall borrow it from her. But she said, it's not like a a super highway. It's not one of these kind of wonderful motorways, the path, is it? It's not like... There it is, and there's junction one, and I'm past that one. Then junction one was, you know, bodily pain, and then got to junction two, and that was, you know, strangeness of being on retreat. I've passed that one, and junction three, and and I've got my lovely map, and you know, junction I don't know what it is, twenty five is complete inner peace, and you know, just a few more junctions to go, and you know, it's all nicely laid out, and there's a comfortable service station along the way with, you know, drinks to help you and everything like that. Radio to tell you if there's any trouble ahead. <laughs> and it, it doesn't seem like that, does it? That the path is this kind of predictable, linear, absolutely laid out before us, you know, in some kind of clinical way. And maybe the path, and again, if we think back to the Buddha's time, this is perhaps more likely what it was being. It's like a, a path through, through a forest, or a path through some ground that's unfamiliar. And the feeling of just treading a bit. And maybe it's, you know, kind of not a straight path, but it's sort of, you know, moving in, around a bit. And we're not quite sure how, where it is sometimes. You know, sometimes if you go for a walk, and if you've gone for walks around Guy House, and sometimes even in the fields in England, it's like that. There's supposed to be a path through here, but you're not quite sure where it is. And you're looking, just oh, maybe we can just see the next step and the next step and the next step. And so perhaps that image of a path is, is appropriate for what our, our path of freedom is like. And also too, when we think of a path in that organic sense, as we tread the path, we're of course 
opening the space for others too. Yeah, it's like a clue. Somebody's been here before, and this must lead somewhere. And yet, as we tread that, we're also then creating that space for others to, to follow in due course. So what, what is it, in a way, that makes us want to explore or follow a path? And I think in some ways it's helpful to think about the Buddha and the Buddha's life story in this and what was it that made him want to pursue a spiritual life and to explore these questions. And uh, traditionally it's said that he grew up in great luxury, in great um, comfort and everything you could want, you know, all the kind of luxuries and material and sensual things that you could desire at that time. And then at a certain stage in his life, he um, decides to leave the walls of this palace, this palace of luxury and comfort and security. And what he sees beyond those walls are an old person, a sick person. Uh, he sees a person who's died, a, a corpse, a dead person. And he sees a holy person. And these things are, are sights. These things are, for the Buddha, a kind of inspiration, something that begins him on this path. You know, what is this life about? What is this life about? You know, beyond just pleasure and comfort and security, what, what does it mean for my life that this body grows old, this body will die? What does it mean that this body is subject to sickness? Yeah. And what's this person doing, this holy person? <laughs> so again, seeing these kind of things became a kind of uh, an inspiration for him, something that moved him on. Um, and I think for many of us, in many ways, we have our equivalents of those. If we see the story in a kind of allegorical sense, it's probably unlikely that as up to that stage he'd never been aware of death or old age or sickness. But we have those moments in our lives, don't we, where it sometimes hits us a bit more deeply. And that's when it starts to uh, kind of propel us, move us to ask some questions about that. You know, what does my life mean if it's going to end? I also think... When we think of the Buddha too, and then you think about you know his, his the Buddha's life story. Of course, he continued to get old. You know, he's said to have found awakening, and then his body continues to get old. He continued to be sick, and then you know passed away. So, what is it that the Buddha was doing? I mean, he doesn't find an answer to those things in a kind of technological sense. I'm going to find something that's going to stop that happening. You know, for someone to stop the body getting old or stop the body getting sick, stop those things. But it's in a way of living in a way that makes sense within that, living in a way that um, is not made meaningless by those facts of life, living in a way that faces those realities fully and the uh, realities and limitations of a human existence and finds freedom within that. I think as we live a path too, or think about cultivating this path, this sense of, um, you know, perhaps the foresight, the sight of the holy person, is also something for us to think about too. 
you know, what is it that sense of possibility that inspires us and keeps us going? You know, when it comes to sitting, walking, and sitting, walking, and you know, why? And then maybe we need sometimes this sense of aspiration, a sense of possibility. And uh, certainly for me, I mean, the, you know, there are figures in our history now that have become kind of almost iconic, haven't they, really? I mean, I think of um, Gandhi, if you think of the life of Gandhi. It's become almost like a, you know, a sort of icon of our time, of a, of a sort of possibility for human beings. And uh, for me, it was certainly, certainly the case. But before I used to practice meditation, I really knew anything about Buddhism. There was some sense of, this guy is interesting, <laughs> You know, why is he he's in his simple robes and trying to practice simplicity in this kind of fearless and uncompromising message of non-violence? You know, what's that about? What's that about? What was it that made him want to do that? And what was the power in that kind of lifestyle? And that, that again, for me, was like a question. It led me to explore different things. Or we think, may think of um, Aung San Suu Kyi in Burma at the moment. You know, live all those years under house arrest and, you know, have to this, really this very, really tough decision and choice between, you know, being back with her family and her family life and then that sense of uh, wanting to help the Burmese people and the, the duty that she felt to be there. And to be able to do that and come out and maintain such dignity and strength and courage. You know, what is it? that enables her to do that. Or, you know, you think of Nelson Mandela and his decision to learn the language of um, Afrikaans. So learn, rather than, you know, just simply wanting to condemn the people who'd imprisoned him, but wanting to learn the language. I mean, what, what a decision to make, a direction to make. And then we see, of course, you know, when he, you know, was eventually uh, released and then in South Africa they had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and uh, you know I know the history of human beings is obviously much more kind of messy and complicated and difficult than you know any sort of lovely story about it was take, make it into a fairy tale you know but you see what, what's the power of that that wanting to wanting to choose truth reconciliation courage to respond to those difficult situations so for you know in many ways these kind of things also what enables us to cultivate a path a sense of possibility a sense of aspiration and uh, somebody was asking me today about the um, the statues that we have here and uh, I was explaining that actually years ago in Guy House they didn't have any really there, there was a sense of not, you know not having a uh, Kuan Yin or not having the Buddha um, and a feeling that they could, that could might be a distraction and you just get to the essence of the teaching not get caught in this kind of symbolism that may be confusing for some people or, you know. um, but really in a way that's what they're there for I mean if, if we find it I mean to me it's just like another skillful means so to me if I, if I look at the Buddha it's like a yeah, kind of a sense of possibility, a sense of a symbolization of, of wisdom, of compassion, of a great profound stillness. And it can say different things to me at different times. It's not that 
Oh, the, the Buddha means this or the Buddha means that but it, it's like you have a kind of sense of what does that mean and that might change over time and our, ch- our sense of where the practice is going I think changes over time too it's not here I am in the practice I want to get there and it's simple but it, the whole kind of idea of what the path is what the goal is, is that also evolves and changes and, and moves and so just an invitation please to see those things as skillful Skillful means, so like all of the teachings, I mean everything we're doing here, I think is that sense of it's an offering, it's a gift, if it's useful, pick it up. If it's not useful, <laughs> just leave it to one side. You know, and I, I know some people sort of respond to these things, and, oh, and others think, oh, I'm, I'm not sure, I like the look of that. And that's either thing is really fine. You know, if it's useful for that sense of aspiration, that's really what it's about. So as we're cultivating this path, there are lots of ways of thinking about that, the kind of direction of it. Mm. Yeah, in some ways for me, I, I find it a nicer sense of, of thinking in terms of a, of a direction rather than a destination. It's actually something that Carl Rogers spoke about. If you know Carl Rogers, a humanistic psychologist. But a sense of, of a direction rather than a kind of fixed idea of destination. A fixed idea of destination, then we, it's like I was saying at the start. It's like, you know, how far have I gone? How far have I got to go? You know, I've been with the breath a while now. They say, you know, where's this peace coming? You know, <laughs> it's promised to me. Guy House do a money back guarantee, five retreats and complete peace, all your money back, and that kind of thing. But it feels to me more like a like a direction, you know, this sense of yeah, this sense of awakening. Mean people talk about that. It's like, wow, what's that about? You know, is that possible? Is that something for people like us, or is that something if you know centuries ago people? Experience something like that, or you have to be in a cave for ten years, you might get a sense of it. Uh, or is it something you know, apparent here and now? It's one of the, the characteristics of, of the Dharma. Um, and to me, again, our sense of what that means can change and be fluid. We don't have to fix it. So, on the one hand, there might be the tendency to want to sort of really bring it down. Oh, well, that just means that must just mean, you know, having a bit of space. Or that means this kind of superhuman, you know, several lifetimes, countless of lifetimes kind of sense. So either we make it so far away that it becomes irrelevant or so close that it becomes just almost too ordinary. But again, working with that in our practice, what does it mean? Having that as a creative question, what does it mean? The sense of a path of awakening. You know, I'm necessarily trying to pin it down. So in terms of this path too, another way of thinking in terms of, of direction rather than destination perhaps is a direction from impulse to intentionality. From impulse to intentionality. And I think that's something we can really see on this retreat. How many impulses have we got? Do we want to lead a life governed by impulse? Or can be, there be more of a sense of there's something running through it which is a little bit more steady? 
So being governed by impulse is a little bit like I was talking the other day with the, the hindrances. You know, if I'm walking in town and uh, go past PC World and there's a nice new computer in there, and it's there, credit card's out. That's you know, one example of being governed by impulse. Or somebody uh, sends me an email I don't like very much at work uh, and typing away straight away. The email practice, I think, is an interesting one. It just immediately respond in that way. That's the kind of thing of being governed by impulse. Or, you know, I'm sitting in meditation. It's easy to do this at home. You know, I think, okay, I'm going to sit for half an hour. And after ten minutes, maybe. I think what I need to do today is read. So you get up and then read. <laughs> you know. But that kind of governed by impulse just means we're being thrown around the whole time being thrown around the whole time by whatever thing happens to arise and pass. And I think there's a kind of false freedom in that. You know, this, this idea of do what you feel, do what feels right. There can be a kind of pseudo-freedom in that, really. And uh, I'm going to take the liberty. Somebody sent us a note, so hopefully if I can weave in this question into, into the talk at this stage, it, it works well. But it, it just seemed to fit to me. Um, and the person said, if everything is impermanent, why make a lifelong commitment such as marriage? Why not just lay, live day by day and see how it goes? Um, I think it's, a, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, and to me, there's something about having um, some kind of forms or disciplines or kind structures within which there's a freedom. Within which there's a freedom. So there are different senses of what freedom might be. So again, one sense with freedom might be like, well, I'm definitely not getting married. That marriage is nothing to do with freedom. Marriage is being tied down. <laughs> could be that kind of thing. So then we could have that attitude, perhaps, to our relationships. You know, I'm with this person for a bit, and this is, you know, nice. And then, well, uh, you know, we probably know what it's, <laughs> it's like sometimes. You know, you have the honeymoon bit. And <laughs> It's nice and a wonderful, da, da, da. and then you discover they have certain characteristics that they didn't write on the dating website or whatever. <laughs> that people don't necessarily put that, you know, snores really loudly or prone to get ir- irritable or snaps sometimes, or you know, and then these things turn up. And then if we're just governed by impulse, of course, well, it's well, this is not good. Must be the next one. Must be the next one. Must be the next one. And we could see that being governed by that would become rather tiring really, become rather tiring. It's like we're just constantly the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So something, you know, for instance, like marriage, and I'm, you know, I'm not, not in the business of promoting marriage tonight, but it's, it's just one example of a way we can make a, make a sort of commitment to something that holds us steady. And within that, there's another kind of freedom. And I think that's very much what this practice is about. So, yeah, you can make the commitment to be married and then, uh, you know, when the person's difficult things arise or our difficult things arise and, uh, and all of that comes, that there's some container to work with that. We're not just immediately thinking, okay, this isn't right, next thing, next thing. And that's, you know, I'm certainly, of course, not saying sometimes, of course, people for very wise and good reasons decide it's time to move on. You know, and, and that's certainly a possibility too. But it's not that there's a feeling of not if if we, there's something that's going to hold us steady, something we can come back to. And uh, 
we've done that really for this for these few days haven't we on this retreat in many ways we've on an outward level restricted our freedom we've said you know we're not going to watch radio uh, watch radio if you can do that but watch tv or listen to the radio look at the internet or you know get caught up in conversation we've restricted our freedom to eat when we want uh, eat what we want there's been a lot of outward restriction does that reveal an inner possibility of freedom because we can begin to see the impulse arise we can begin to see them pass and we can begin to not be so thrown around and governed by that so again it's it's a vision of a different sense of what it means to be free it means to be free. So when we're thinking about this sense of uh, cultivating a path, I mean, this has lots of different uh, aspects to it. Um, And you may know, you may be familiar with the Buddha's teaching on the the Noble Eightfold Path. I'm not going to go through all of those um, different elements uh, tonight in detail, but it begins with what we can call a right view or wise view. Seeing clearly. There's something about how we see the world, how we um, understand things, our beliefs, our views, that's very much part of this um, path of freedom. And an idea I find very useful is like this idea of filters. If we think that there's sometimes like we're wearing coloured spectacles. I like this idea a lot. You know, people say that somebody looks at the world through rose-coloured spectacles. That's a person who's a bit kind of Pollyannaish and everything's lovely, and, you know. Um, everything's kind of nice and there's no, no problems in the world and everybody's really nice at heart. That kind of rose-coloured tinted view of the world. But we could extend that metaphor and think of all the different colours. You know, you could have green spectacles or grey or blue and all that kind of thing. So, so what are those filters? And those filters, it seems to me, are particular mind states, particular emotions, particular states of mind. And part of the path is beginning to see those things. So again, we're not believing them so strongly. We're beginning to be aware, oh, maybe there's a filter here. It's like that move between the world really is green, if you like, to, ah, there's a green filter here at the moment. So begin to become conscious of that. Begin to become conscious of what shapes our perceptions and begin to become aware of that that can be worked with, that can be shifted, that can be changed. Just to give you know some examples of how that that might work, really. You know, if you have a sense that there's somebody you find difficult in your life, maybe a neighbour that you find a real pain, and why do they keep doing that? And I don't like how they, I don't know, put out their rubbish or weed the garden too much or don't weed it enough or play their music or complain about me playing music or whatever it is. There's some kind of story about the neighbour and why we don't like them, and then we can be kind of build that into some sense that they're. A, unpleasant or selfish person or something like that. Um, and then, you know, perhaps we learn a little bit more about their lives. We learn, you know, uh, about some difficulty they've had. Maybe we learn that they've, they've lost somebody 
Or maybe we learn that they've been made redundant, or maybe we learn that they're struggling with some illness, or they're looking, they, they're a carer, they're looking after somebody. And those kind of things begin to shift that perception, that perception that could be, be there, you know, unpleasant, ignorant person, and it can be softened when we know a little more about them. Yeah? And so sometimes in cultivating this path, we can look at these perceptions. How can we soften and change uh, and be a bit more easeful around them? And uh, we've been doing the the loving-kindness practice today, and I think in many ways that's that's one of the ways that practice is is an insight practice as well as a concentration practice. (coughs) Because we can begin by dividing the world. And actually the traditional stages of the loving-kindness practice are like this. The world is full of people I like. It's full of people I don't like. It's full of people who, you know, I neither like nor don't like. And that way of looking at the world is actually a world shaped by, um, by me. <laughs> yeah? People I like are people who've got something I want, who are going to help me get what I want. People I don't like are generally people who are stopping me get what I want. They're in my way. They're threatening me. And people who I don't pay much attention to are, you know, neither here nor there. So that kind of way of dividing the world, those I like, those I don't like, um, and those who are neutral, is in a way shaped, isn't it? If you think about it, it's shaped by those perceptions of, of craving, of, of aversion. So in the loving-kindness meditation, we begin to soften those categories, change those perceptions around those people. And, uh, you know, so as Martin was saying, look, it, look to the person, look to the humanity, and beneath all of those judgments, and begin to see in a, in a more deep way. The, the, the Dalai Lama, when he gives talks, gives public talks, and it often comes back to this idea of all beings want to be happy. All beings want to be happy and all beings do not want to suffer. And uh, I read something, somebody commentated on the fact he, he goes around kind of saying this thing again and again. And you know, the Dalai Lama is... Uh, well, you know, um, full of so many deep and wonderful teachings, of course, you know, and this is schooled in the Madhyamaka philosophy of uh, Tibetan Buddhism and the kind of teachings of Shantideva and, and Nagarjuna and uh, emptiness and uh, all things that are empty and of inherent existence and all these kind of deeply profound and philosophical teachings. And yet he can also say this thing that sounds so simple all beings want to be happy. And all beings don't want to suffer. So you think, well, why is this person with this great rich of teaching saying something so simple? <laughs> and yet to see, actually, it's, it's a huge shift of perspective to begin to see others in that way. Rather than just to see, yeah, you, you know, there's somebody I like, somebody I don't like, somebody who's neutral, and my reasons for liking, not liking, you know, they should be like, they shouldn't be like... Just what would it be like to have that perception? This is a being who wants to be happy. This is a being who doesn't want to suffer. It's like getting down to that base humanity, seeing each other from that level, rather than the level of complication and judgment and opinion and theory and abstraction, but just seeing that. 
And we can see how that's a shift of perception that will feed in to then how we, how we speak and how we act and how we respond. So another of these uh, shifts in perception which really then feeds into cultivating uh, this path of freedom um, and again is about um, this division of the world between us and them again I, I often come back to this I think it's so so kind of so deep and so important to see this and see it again and again and again but the way that we can divide the world into you know those we like or those we don't like those who are like me and those who aren't like me. You know, my friends and my enemies. And how many situations in life can that basic tendency, and I think it's a deep tendency in, in the human mind to divide the world in that way. How many ways does that play, that play itself out? Of course it plays itself out in terms of religious identities. You know, I'm this religion, so I don't like people of that religion. Um, or of course, you know, I'm part of this group within this religion and I don't like that group within this religion or um, I've got these political views I don't like people of the other political views of course it plays itself out in terms of uh, racism you know, I'm of this ethnic group I'm of that ethnic group it plays itself out in terms of our organisations if you think I don't know if this is the case where you work but uh, you know, if, if you, you're working you might think what are the divisions? What are the, the ways in which it, it divides into groups and subgroups and a feeling of them and us, whether it's the management and the, everybody else or you know, that group, don't talk to that group. You know, all of these kind of ways we can divide and feed that kind of division in our, in our consciousness. And, and so just seeing how this, this, this is a kind of basic uh, feature. We... <laughs> I had a nice time once when we were discussing this and this kind of us and them, and uh, you know, it was, it was the time when the the war on terror was really strong, and and you know, you could see uh, George Bush at times having this kind of mentality of you know, it was us and them and this, this kind of thing, and um, <laughs> we were talking about this, and then I think we began to realise after a while that we were really in danger of dividing the world into those who think in terms of us and them, and those who don't think in terms of us and them. Uh, we just hopefully sort of caught ourselves <laughs> at the time, you know, these kind of wonderful people who don't think like that, and those who do. And I think just to smile at that, and it, I think it just shows how, again, what a, what a tendency it is to do it, and it just comes out of me, it just keeps coming up. So just to be aware of that. And this uh, quotation that uh, you know, I, I love for helping see beyond this from Solzhenitsyn, he says, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart. 
And I think in many ways that's what we, you know, we're discovering and exploring on, on these days. You know, we can see all of it, can't we, in there? When you sit and meditate, you can see the kind of, you know, the, the wish to be, you know, you're wrong. You can see it's all here in there. <laughs> the greed and the hatred and the thing. We can see it come and go, see it come and go, see it come and go. And then, um, you know, as um, Ajahn Chandrasiri is saying, you know, not then, then we can begin not to project it out so much. It's when it's so dangerous. It's when it's unacknowledged, projected onto others. And then, of course, righteous indignation come and we can condemn and put them down. But yeah, just see... It's here, it's here, come work with it, come work with it. So then the question is, um, how do we live all of this, really? <laughs> and that's the, the ongoing thing. You know, it's like uh, we come to a place like this and we have uh, yeah, certain experiences perhaps or certain kind of insights and understandings. And then the whole next thing is then how, how does that express itself? How does that um, show itself in how we live, in how we live? And the Buddha, in, in this teaching of the Eightfold Path, you know, has these different limbs that are more about that expression. It talks about in terms of um, wise action or right action, livelihood and speech. And just perhaps just thinking about those things um, for a bit. I mean, in terms of speech, I don't know about you, but I think so many people report that this one is, is, is one of the tough ones, right? Really. You know, um, we can be in, in silence and feel quiet, uh, still, calm. And yet it's then when we get into that engagement with others, when we get into that situations of relationship, when we get into speech, where that impulsiveness can be so quick, so quick. So it's a very uh, useful area to bring more consciousness to and, and, and to work with more. And in, in terms of wise speech, of course, we have these uh, guidelines to work with, a sense of trying as much as possible to be honest, yeah? to be honest, to um, yeah, to live in a way that's true to our heart and, and communicate from that. And begin to see, again, one of the things that can uh, inspire us towards that is to see that there's, all, there's often a kind of disconnection in dishonesty. And we can feel that there's a pain in that. Again, it's lovely, isn't it, those times when you, you're with a friend. I mean, if you have these times in, in conversation with friends, and you can't necessarily predict when it's going to happen, but sometimes it just drops to a deeper level. You know that? You can have those uh, friendships, you know, just kind of chatting about this and that, or perhaps other friendships where there's um, subtle or not so subtle sort of rivalries and and kind of jealousies going on, so there's more of a feeling of uh, trying to project an image or defend an image going on. And sometimes in conversations, it just seems to, 
it seems to go, and you can really be yourself. <laughs> and you can say, yeah, I, that happens to me too. And you're not, yeah, it's not trying to say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm this or I'm that. It's, yeah, yeah, I feel like that too. Um, and, oh, it's such a, it's such a sort of delight when that level of honest communication kind of comes about. And I certainly remember as a, as a teenager, and I, I don't know, perhaps in danger of drifting into stereotypes, yeah, I don't know, but perhaps even for teenage boys more, I don't know. That's just speculation. Uh, but perhaps it's quite rare to have that kind of conversation. And it's got quite a strong memory of being with certain friends when, when it just suddenly dropped like that. And all the kind of stuff about you know having to be tough and hard and, you know, I don't feel like that. And, you know, just all that kind of thing. That sort of energy just dropped. And then I was beginning to think, oh, God, this is what a friendship's like. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the kind of beauty of that. So the honest speech can really open up that depth of, of communication. And our speech at times then can feel like a, a gift. It's an aspiration I find beautiful. What's it like for our speech to be a gift? And uh, and another aspect of this, again, is a sense of uh, not engaging in in kind of useless or meaningless speech. And uh, I certainly don't think this means never having small talk. And that's, you know, just a part of ordinary conversation that we have that. And there's if, you know, you immediately, somebody says to you, how was your retreat when you get back? I mean, this is an interesting one, you know. I mean, know who you're talking to. Because some people, honestly, the real, the best thing is to say, yeah, it was good. And they say, oh, good. <laughs> and that's it. You know, they really don't want to know anymore <laughs> at that time. And that's, that's skillful. You know, it's fine to know there's a time and a place. You know, appropriate thing. And uh, it, it would be a bit weird, wouldn't it, if you sort of every moment in every life you had to bring, you know, you sort of bumped into someone at coffee at work and they say, yeah, how are you? And you said, I'm contemplating death. <laughs> you know. If, if it, you know, so it, it's not it's not about that, is it? But yeah, just the sense that, yeah, when the time and place is right, can we have those times when we can speak more, more fully and, and about what's true and beautiful for us? Mm. And then again, just to, to briefly at the end mention, again, the, this cultivating a path is about then how it's expressed in our actions and in, in our livelihood. Um, and for me, these things, uh, these are all a training. Uh, they're a training. You know, we talk about the threefold training of sila, samadhi, panya, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. And ethics and Wise livelihood, right livelihood too, is, is a training. It's a, it's a direction. Um, just like when we're with the breath. You know, we can be with the breath, and with the breath, with the breath, and then you find that you've wandered off. And there's somewhere to come back to. So to me, the precepts are like that. The precepts are like a, like a friend, really. You know, like kind of five rules to beat yourself up with. But they're, they're five things that give a kind of direction of like, oh yeah, just wandering off here. 
you know, where's the world? <laughs> and just going here. And again, it's some quite a testimony, isn't it, to the continuity uh, within human beings. That again, these these things that the Buddha spoke about so long ago and in a different place are still so relevant. The sense of harming living beings or taking what's not given. The whole area of uh, our relationships, sex and relationships, speech, you know, our, how we use drink and drugs. These were the things that were around for people at the time. <laughs> and again, they're still around now. Um, and for me, it's so useful to have that as a framework. Again, thinking back, you know, I think as a, as a teenager, I didn't really have that. I probably had some sense, yeah, it's good to be a good person. And, you, you know, you can have that. There's actually one ethical theory called situation ethics, which just says that's the only rule you need. Do the most loving thing. And that's kind of true. It is kind of true, isn't it? You know, there's a lot of beauty in that. But sometimes we need something a little bit more specific too. <laughs> and these precepts are like that. Because we can, you know, the kind of self-justification we get lost in, all kinds of things. So somebody just says, hang on, what's going on here? Like a little wake-up thing. So the precepts can be like a friend. And then too, how that is expressed in our, in our work, in our livelihood, is a very... For many of us, a, a kind of interesting and long process, and it might involve changing work at times for some people. It might involve being in the same work and doing it in different ways, about the quality of mind or attention we bring to it, about the attitude we bring to it. Do we have the work as a sense of, you know, just something that's in my way I've got to get rid of? Or can it be an expression of service? Can it be an expression of service? Can it be a way of giving? Can I connect with my sense of generosity yeah, in the work that I do? And that can be in all kinds of all kinds of ways. And sometimes we talk about the the caring professions, but maybe that could be much, much, much broader than we usually understand it. And bring that quality of of care and attention. It's not just you know. If you're a social worker or a teacher or a nurse, then you're caring. And if you work in a shop, or then somehow you're not. Not at all. You, you can bring that, bring those qualities into those different realms. You read about people who've done that. You kind of work in, work in a shop and really use that. Every person that comes in, I'm going to wish them loving kindness. Yeah, for some of those people, it might be the only person they see in a day. Yeah. And just finding ways in which that path can be expressed in what we're doing. Mm. So yeah, just a few uh, suggestions, really. What is a, is a kind of ongoing process of looking at our views, our perceptions, our belief, being flexible with us, seeing what's true, and then as best we can, trying to live from what we, what's true. Speak and think and act and work and move around in the world from that place. You know? And we don't have to do it perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Our direction, wander off. And just like the breath, we come back. It's a sense of cultivating a path. It's a direction that we come back to again and again. Good. So we just sit quietly just for a minute or two.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.